Please take your Bibles and turn with me again to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. As we once again get to observe and learn from and learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 5. And we will be reading verses 27 through 32 this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After that, he went out. This is speaking of Jesus. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors? And sinners. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What kind of person is welcome with Jesus? An important question, is it not? What kind of person is welcome? To come to God through Jesus. Who did Jesus come into the world for? In the passage that precedes this one, which we looked at last time, Jesus greatly offended the Pharisees and their scribes with his claim of authority to forgive sins. Well, now he takes this up another level. And not only does he say that he can forgive one man of his sin and that he has the authority to forgive sins on earth but this is the very purpose for which he came into the world he came into the world not just to forgive sin but to call sinners specifically sinners no one else but sinners and it is his desire to come and to associate with them and to give himself for them so that they might be forgiven and that they might be his people. It isn't then just that he can forgive. It's that this action of forgiveness is foundational to the entire mission of bringing sinners to himself. And in this passage, Jesus shows us that that is exactly what he came to do. To invite and to bring sinners to himself. Jesus came, as this passage said, says, to call sinners. What kicks off the whole event then is what happens in verses 27 to 28. And the first thing we find in this text is that Jesus calls a tax collector. He calls a tax collector. After that, Luke tells us he went out. After the preceding events where he has healed a paralytic and stated that he forgave his sins, he goes out and he notices someone, a tax collector. Now, who is a tax collector? What is a tax collector? What were they and what did they do? As you may well know, the Roman Empire at this time was uh, ruling over Israel as it was over really the entire Mediterranean seaboard and beyond. And 
they laid taxes upon the people that they had conquered. Roman taxes, according to one source, upon the Jews were at that time very severe. And the structure was something like this. Uh, High up the organizational structure, there were people called publicans who would contract with the state to collect a certain amount of taxes from a certain area. They then contracted with people below them, magistry, and these hired local agents below them called tax collectors to come and to collect the taxes directly from the people. The owners or the holders of these contracts and these tax franchises were usually foreigners, but they hired from the locals themselves to collect the taxes. So in this case, they hired from the Jews tax collectors to collect from the Jews. Now, there was a certain amount that the tax franchise owners agreed to get for Rome. And so the tax collectors like Levi were required to get a certain amount toward that end. And then anything else that they could get above and beyond, they were able to keep for themselves. So you can understand the temptation that they had to take a lot. Now, having spent some time in my life working in the field of debt collection, I understand what it's like when you try to talk to someone and convince them to give them money that they owe. You'll hear things like, you are scum. Don't ever talk to me again, and other such kind words. And I can only imagine the kind of responses that you would hear from someone from your own people coming to you and forcing you to pay taxes on behalf of a ruling empire. You essentially would have to say, I don't want to have anyone who likes me in this entire world except maybe some fellow tax collectors. Not only do they come and demand that you pay this on behalf of a foreign empire, but also they're taking from these people on top of what they actually were required to take. And the people knew that, doing so to enrich themselves. And so these men, these tax collectors, were disloyal to their people. They betrayed the nation. They mistreated them. They stole from them. And the result was a terrible but well-deserved reputation. One dictionary puts it this way, quote, A Jew entering the customs service cut himself off from decent society. He was disqualified from being a judge or even a witness in court and excommunicated from the synagogue. The members of his family were considered to be equally tarnished, end quote. Now, the Jews thought this way as a whole, and you might say, well, that's just the Jews. They had a lot of distorted ideas about righteousness and religion and Gentiles and other people like this. But it's not the case here. Even Jesus himself thinks and talks this way about tax collectors. And not only is he very aware of how evil they are, but he doesn't hesitate to use them as examples of the worst kind of people that you could encounter. Matthew 5, 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He says they're terrible people, and yet they still love each other. So if you love just people that love you, you're not any better than the worst. In Matthew 18, 17, he speaks about what it means to put someone out of the church. He says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, in unrepentant sin, that is, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, treat him like he has no right to be with you. People in our own day make jokes about certain professions, don't they? I'm sure you've heard various jokes about people like lawyers, which is one type of profession that has a special ability maybe to attract and even perhaps to produce unscrupulous 
citizens. Apologies to any lawyers who may be here. And uh, certainly not overlooking any other careers or types of jobs that would be thought of in the same way. But you can, you can hear the people in Capernaum at that time, kind of around the proverbial water cooler, talking this way. Did you hear the joke about the tax collector as they prepare to insult them? These men then were social outcasts. In an earlier passage, we met a leper. Do you remember this? We met a leper, and this leper came to Jesus, and he was desperate because not only did he have a disease, but that disease kept him from being able to associate with society. But tax collectors, unlike lepers, were social outcasts because of their own choices, because of their own decisions. They sold out their nation, they sold out their family and their friends, and all they had left was each other, unless they stabbed each other in the back. And when you consider then... That Jesus would not only allow, but also want a tax collector to become one of his followers. It's an incredible thing. In fact, it's so incredible that the Pharisees can hardly believe it. And it's going to become a scandal to them. Calling Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. And not only to allow him and want him to be near him, but to make him one of his 12 apostles. This is even more amazing. And that specific tax collector before us today is a man, he says, named Levi. Levi. Now, who was this man, Levi? Well, he is none other than the biblical Matthew as well. And we know this because in the same story in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, he is referred to as Matthew. But even more than being uh, called Matthew, even more significant than that, is what Jesus calls him to which is calling him to follow him. Calling him, by doing this, to salvation. Jesus, he says, said to him, follow me. And so Levi is sitting in the tax booth, likely a customs booth of some uh, strategic position in some strategic location between, um, uh, between various places on the routes that go through the city. He's there representing everything that the Jews hate, all that's sinful in the world, all the kind of evil that someone could do as a fellow Israelite. And Jesus stops and talks to him. And you might think that he would say something if you were a Jew at that time. He's going to walk by the tax booth. What is he going to tell this person? He's going to say, what were you thinking taking on this job, you despicable tax collector or how dare you sell us out like this that's what a lot of people would have wanted him to say how could you do this you're not operating in the best interest of the people but what does he say he says to him follow me follow me here you have Jesus then the pure and holy one the one who never did anything wrong this is the one before whom all creatures must bow and the one who knows everything that anyone has ever done including Matthew and he looks at this tax collector and says follow me Come with me. Be one of my disciples. Spend time with me. Associate with me. Know me. And I love you and you can serve on my behalf. What an act of incredible grace. And yet, this is still a decision that Levi has to make. Am I going to follow Jesus? Now, he's likely not meeting Jesus or at least hearing him or hearing about him for the first time. This is, in fact, in Capernaum, Jesus' home base. He would have no doubt been familiar on some level with his ministry. Everybody knew about Jesus by this point. Um, and so then Jesus' call to him doesn't come completely out of nowhere. And yet his call directly to him where he identifies him and says, you now follow me, would come 
as a massive inflection point in his life. Because to follow him, he had to do something. And that's what the text tells us. He said to him, follow me. What does he have to do? Well, verse 28 tells us. He left everything behind, got up, and began to follow him. He obeyed Jesus' call. He did start following him. But what did it mean for him to do this? For Levi or Matthew to leave everything behind was really to leave basically everything behind. And when it comes to his career and his income and his provision, he, he was uh, leaving this all behind. And the stigma that's associated with a man like this would leave him basically unemployable, unhirable. No one would want him. Try to imagine getting a resume in a stack and you look on it and you say, this looks like a pretty good set of skills, but this says here that you worked with Enron in the early 2000s. And then you worked with Bernie Madoff a few years later. That doesn't seem like the kind of person that you would want to hire. This is the kind of stain that is on a tax collector's resume. He doesn't know what he's going to do. There's no way to know that he's going to be provided for at all. And so to leave, Jesus, to leave him and to follow Jesus, to leave behind his tax booth and do this, he wouldn't be able to get it back, and he would be entrusting himself to Jesus in a way that's almost unspeakable. But he knew that it was worth doing. He trusted Jesus to this degree. It was an act of ultimate faith. It was an act of belief in the worthiness of Jesus Christ, that it was worth it to leave all and follow him. He was trusting that Jesus and what he offered was worth losing everything. The Apostle Paul speaks in this way when he says in Philippians 3, 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Levi looks at his tax business, looks at his booth, looks at his provision and says, it's all worth it if I get to follow Jesus. Now, on a side note here, what's interesting is that Levi is the only tax collector who is ever told to stop being a tax collector. He has just said, he is told, follow me. But none of the other tax collectors are told that they can't do that anymore, which is an amazing fact considering how evil most of them were and how replete the profession was with extortion and greed. When the tax collectors came to John the Baptist, though, what did he tell them? He simply said, do your job in a way that is righteous. He said, collect no more than you have been ordered to. Now, obviously, this may make the position far less lucrative, but it was the right thing to do. And so it was not for a tax collector that being a tax collector was the problem. Uh, it wasn't that they were somehow associated with an evil system or even enabling someone else to do evil through them, which is an incredible statement. Rather, the problem was they themselves individually in their role acting like a stereotypical tax collector, that is, using their authority and abilities to steal from people. And so it's a vital distinction between being part of the system versus yourself doing evil. And there is lots of room to be involved in things that other people are misusing and other people even want you to be involved with uh, so that they can do evil things versus you yourselves doing something that is unrighteous. 
We've already seen in the gospel according to Luke that there's great value in doing supposedly normal occupations in a way that honors Christ and that serves him with your life. But here we get something even stronger, which is that it's even possible to do a job that's almost always done unrighteously in a way that honors Jesus. Now, there are, of course, some jobs where that is impossible by definition of the job. If you are employed to work as someone in a scam call center, there's no way that you can do that job and not actually be sinning. And yet, most jobs, even things where people normally don't do them in a godly way, are able to be done in such a way as to glorify God in that situation. It just may cost you being a lucrative position, and it might even cost you the job itself. Levi though, receives a special call. And he's told to get out of this job, not because the job itself is inherently evil, but because Jesus is so worthy of being followed. What this call to Levi then tells us, shows us, is that Jesus is willing and eager to receive even the worst of sinners. We'll see more about this momentarily. Not only did he want to receive them, but he intended to use such people in proclaiming his message of salvation to others. And the reputation that comes from the past life of sin can be overcome through the gospel and through what Jesus does by his grace. We find that Jesus is worthy of following him even when you have to give up a very luxurious and comfortable and wealthy life situation to do so. And he's worthy of following, even if it makes you uncertain about what the future will hold, even the near future. And so I wonder, would you leave everything to follow Jesus? Have you left everything to follow Jesus? This is what he demands, a willingness to do this. Some people, like Matthew, will be told to literally leave everything behind and follow him. Others simply need to be prepared. But all of us must say that Jesus is worth losing everything to follow because of the salvation that he offers to those who are his. Now, Matthew left everything behind, or Levi left everything behind, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he literally went out and got rid of all his possessions because he then does something with what he has. He evidently maintains a house, and he has enough room in his house for a feast, and he has some resources that he uses to throw this feast that comes up in the next two verses. And Matthew here uses his possessions, even those that had been evidently acquired through sinful motivation and practices, to then turn and to honor Jesus. And that sets the scene when he throws this feast for the next thing in the story, which is that the Pharisees object to Jesus' associations. They object to his associations. In, in verse 29, Levi throws a feast. This is what starts the problem with them. Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and, he says, other people. Now, the Pharisees will refer to these, quote, other people as sinners. Verse 30, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And you might say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Well, the only problem is that Mark himself uh, and Matthew as well refer to those people as sinners. It's not just the Pharisees' words, but they even say in their description of the story that there were their tax collectors and sinners. They own the label on behalf of the people who were there. These were a large crowd, and 
Mark 2.15 tells us that there were many such people and that they were following Jesus. And so they go into this feast and they are reclining at the table. The standard way that they would, uh, that they would eat, not always, but often leaning on their elbow, leaning back so that they're sort of staggered around, diagonally aligned with each other around the table. And they could lean on one elbow and they could eat with the other hand. This was a big thing happening, a big reception, a great big feast for a large crowd. And what's the nature of that crowd? It is full of corrupt extortionists, full of riffraff, everybody who would be rejected from the synagogue. In fact, these are people who wouldn't even set foot in the synagogue. They wouldn't be allowed to be there. And I wonder if you know anybody like this today, if, if someone comes to mind where you say, you know, this person has made themselves so odious to everyone else. They've burned through relationships. They've taken advantage of people. They've stolen from their family. They've done horrible things. They've created a situation of their own making where no one likes them. And on a human level, no one should. Do you know anyone like that? This is the kind of person who was here. Matthew's house was full of them. And why are they here? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one reason is because this is who he knows. These are his people. He's one of them. He's one of the riffraff. They're his friends. They're his acquaintances. And there's something instructive for us here, which is that unfortunately, too many times when people come to Christ, and there are a lot of reasons for this, but immediately they will say, I've just got to get away from my old friends who aren't Christians because they're going to pull me down and keep me from holiness. They're going to keep me from holiness. Now, there may be a time where it becomes evident that that's the case. But Levi certainly doesn't seem to think that way. He doesn't seem to do that. And Jesus certainly doesn't say, Levi, you know what you really need to do is you need to keep all of these people out of your house. And it's just me and you. And I'm discipling you. And I'm your influence. And that way these other people don't keep you from me. He doesn't tell him that. He's left everything to follow Jesus, but that doesn't mean that he leaves his sinful friends. Instead, he brings them to Jesus. Now, they may decide, I don't want anything to do with him. After they talk to him, after they hear from him, after they hear his demands, and they say, you know, Levi, you're on your own with this weird thing. You're on your own with this Jesus guy. It's just not worth it for us. That may be the case, and then they may go away. But don't just say, well, I'm a Christian now. I've got to leave behind everyone who's not. In fact, if anything, you should bring them to Jesus Christ. You should take advantage of the fact that something has happened to you and say, I want to go tell you, I want to go show you what I have received from this Savior. Now, of course, we can't control what happens when someone is presented with Christ and his gospel. But when we learn who Jesus is, we should be like the disciples who said, come and see. We should be like the woman at the well who says, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This should be our first instinct. Let's bring people to learn about Jesus. So Levi has a purpose here. He has a feast for Jesus, and it's also intentionally or at least incidentally evangelistic. Levi wanted Jesus to be there, but he wanted the other people to be there as well. However, someone had a problem with this. Someone had a problem with these two parties that, Jesus, that Matthew wanted together. Jesus is here, the tax collectors and sinners over here, and they said those two should not come together. And that 
someone or someones, it's the Pharisees and their scribes. And so they object to what's going on. Verse 30, they began grumbling at his disciples. The disciples we know are with Jesus. We learn from Matthew and Mark's account of this that they didn't just have an issue with the disciples. They also directly confronted Jesus about this. But here Luke focuses on the disciples. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples. And they said, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, the question word here of why is an interesting one. And the language here indicates that they're not seeking for pure information. They're not just curious and saying, hey, you know, Jesus, uh, why are you doing this? Could you teach us and explain to us why it is that you have these people here? Because, you know, you're a great teacher and we'd really like to follow your example. That's not the language. The idea is that this is a rhetorical accusation. This is a prove it. This is you're doing something wrong. You, Jesus, and his disciples should not be eating with these people. Why are you associating with these tax collectors and sinners? And they are accusing them really of two problems, of two things. One of these things is something that Luke doesn't address in this passage or Jesus. But he does address in the next passage, starting in verse 33, which is the concept of eating and drinking. That is a kind of freeness in what they consumed that was in some way disagreeable to the Pharisees and scribes. But the other issue is addressed here in this passage, which is they are taking part in this activity in fellowship with the outcasts or the should-be outcasts of society. People who should not, in their view, be associated with. People who should be rejected and spurned and kept at arm's length at least. People that no one should be around and that no one should accept. To take part in the feast with such sinful people was a sign of openness to them. It was a sign of including them, being willing to welcome them. And this was a problem for the Pharisees. Now, I want you to think with me as to why this would be the case. Why exactly? You say, well, they're Pharisees. Of course it's a problem. Yes, but why is it a problem for them? What in their thinking makes it a problem for Jesus to associate with them? They're not doing it themselves. Why is Jesus associating with such people a problem? And I want to think through it uh, both from a theological objection that they would have, that they could speak about on the outside, and then three heart problems in their motives for why that was a problem for the Pharisees as well. So first, the theological objections. What was their theology telling them was wrong? Their view about God. What was wrong with the way that they thought about such associations? First of all, they had an idea of guilt by association. Guilt by association. We've heard of the term in general terms, but it also takes place with regard to righteousness. People think that if you are connected with someone who is sinful or who is sinning and you're not properly separated from them, then you will in some way become unholy through your connection with them. This is one of the core tenets of modern fundamentalism, that you're guilty by being associated with something or with someone. And really, it's almost like sin is a kind of virus. And if you just come into close contact with someone, then you're going to become unholy. 
you're somehow corrupted just by being associated with them. And this could mean different things. This could mean that you dress like them or you don't dress differently enough from them. This could mean that you're in the same physical location. It could mean that you overhear something that they're talking about or that you happen to hear some type of music or other thing that comes from them that was, that was made with wrong motives in the first place. Really, there's no limit to what someone can make out of these things, and there's not necessarily any logical, coherent system to it, but there are these pieces that people pull together of guilt by association with regard to theology and righteousness. And not only that, but if someone else is not properly dissociated from that person, that even if they're not doing the thing, if you're associated with the person who's associated with them, then you yourself can become guilty through that also. This was... The Pharisees' religion, and it's the religion of many people still today, who refer to themselves as Christians and may even be, and yet have a very, very poor understanding of sanctification and of God's grace. These Pharisees here couldn't let people, sinful people, corrupt them by their mere presence and association, and so they stayed away, and they said, Jesus, you should too. This is a problem, but Jesus understood differently, and he understood correctly. He knew that by eating with sinners, he didn't make himself less holy. Jesus knew that by eating with sinners, he was not sanctioning their sin. He wasn't saying that what they had done was okay. He wasn't telling them that they were good people, righteous people by being with them. He didn't have to fear that there was some sort of implied approval of their lifestyle just because they were having dinner together. This didn't mean that at all. Instead, what Jesus was doing is simply treating them as people who matter. And as we'll see, he was also doing this toward the path, toward them hearing and believing in him. So they have this problem of guilt by association. And then the other theological problem is more direct, which is acceptance of sinful people. Just merely accepting sinful people. The Pharisees think that sinners like this are too bad for God. They don't deserve to be accepted. They don't need, they're not the kind of people that God should be okay with. And this means that people who want to be righteous like God is shouldn't accept them either. So if Jesus himself claims to be righteous, if he claims to be from God and speaking on behalf of God and operating on behalf of God, surely he should know that these people are sinners and should stay away from them. The Pharisees asked in the previous uh, event, verse 21, who can forgive sins but God alone? They acknowledge that God can forgive sin, but surely they think God doesn't forgive sinners. Not sinners. He may forgive sin for, you know, righteous people like David or like us, the Pharisees, if we do something wrong. But surely he doesn't forgive that kind of a person, not a tax collector, not a sinner. And this is a complete misunderstanding of God, and it misses the entire point of why God sent Jesus into the world. So that's the wrong theology. But what else would be at the root of the Pharisees' objection to associations like this? Let's consider some heart motivations that they had, which would have been a problem when Jesus uh, contrasted to their practice. First of all, they, the Pharisees themselves, don't want to associate with such people. Jesus is kind of showing them up. They don't want to be with those people, so they don't do it. 
And there are reasons for this that are possible. They misunderstand God's grace that's given to such people, available to such people. Uh, they don't like them. They're mad at the, fair, or the, uh, the tax collectors for betraying the nation. And they're unhappy with them. So they don't want them to be able to receive the grace of God. Um, they also are able, by separating from them, to get a leg up in self-righteousness. If they are not with them, they're drawing a distinction. They say, that's a different kind of person. I'm not like that. I'm better than them. I'm not going to get involved in those practices, and I'm not even going to associate with them. It helps them to feel proud to not be like those people. And we see this later on in Luke's account when there is uh, a Pharisee that is praying, and really all he's doing is telling God how great he is. And he says, I thank you that I'm not like all those people or even this tax collector. Pharisees could rejoice in how much better they were in their own minds than others. Uh, it may even be, and this is uh, more of a practical nature, that they don't necessarily even know how to skillfully navigate associating with such people. This is a challenge that is even there for Christians. You don't necessarily know how to be around people who aren't Christians or who are unholy without somehow condoning or compromising the truth around them. So you say, well, rather than actually getting involved there and being able to be uncompromising yet kind to people, I'm just going to stay out of the whole thing. It's just easier for me if I don't get involved. Now, there's something to that in the sense of being, uh, being concerned for righteousness, but it's also something that we need to mature in. And grow in our ability to actually be around people who don't love Christ and who are actively dishonoring him in conversations with us and still know how to act righteously toward them and toward God. The Pharisees also wrongly believe that they'll be corrupted by associating with them. So it's not just that guilt by association is a thing, it's that they don't want to become corrupted. So they don't want to associate with such people, so they say Jesus shouldn't either. Um, a second thing that this does for them if they can criticize the disciples is it gives them an occasion for saying the disciples are less holy than they are and the pharisees can point to them and say we have a better system than you it draws a line not just between the pharisees and the sinners but between the pharisees and jesus and his disciples to where they can point out that jesus is wrong they have to do this really because they have to justify why they would do something different than Jesus is. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet. And he's saying, this is the way to treat sinners. And the Pharisees have to make a choice. Do we follow him? Or do we say, no, you're wrong and our way is right? The third problem they would have in their heart then is that Jesus and the disciples are undermining their own teaching. And they are um, therefore a threat to the influence of the Pharisees and to their power, to their respect among the people. They are showing that, no, that what the Pharisees are saying is not actually the way to do things. And so they have to justify their own separation from the people in order to defend their own trustworthiness. Pharisees were wrong then in their theology and in their desires. So how do we get it right? How do we get it right? And what are we to think of associating with sinful people. I want to think through this for a few minutes while we're on the subject. Um, why did Jesus think that it was okay to associate with these people? And how are we to decide when and how to associate with sinners? The Bible comes at this from a number of different angles. And there's not just one way to think about it. There's a whole package. Uh, sometimes it shouldn't be done. And sometimes it can and even should be done. 
Um, what are the times when it shouldn't be done? Well, some bad associations, some bad way of associating with sinners would be these. First of all, joining sinners in sinning. Joining sinners in actually committing sin. So Proverbs 1.10 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Don't follow after them. Don't do what they do. Don't follow their example. And Ephesians 5.11 says, Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So whatever they do, don't join with them in sinning. Um, a second way we should not associate with sinners is by being a companion of fools. So the Proverbs warns us that a companion of fools will suffer harm. And 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We should be aware that we will possibly and probably be influenced by the people that are pouring into our lives that we're spending a lot of time with and that if we just carelessly and uncautiously make them our best friends and our counselors and the ones that are our examples or that we look up to or that we sort of implicitly follow then they are going to lead us into folly and unrighteousness so we need to think through what it means to be a companion of fools or for that for us to have bad company there's a distinction between that and associating with sinners in the way Jesus does, but we need to be discerning and careful about who is influencing whom in a relationship. Uh, a third way where we would be wrong to associate with sinners would be condoning the sins of professing Christians. Condoning the sins of professing Christians. So 1 Corinthians 5 Verses 9 through 11, Paul distinguishes between the unrighteous in the world, whom you can't get away from, and the unrighteous in the church, whom you must get away from. And he tells the Corinthian church to, in fact, send away and not associate with people who proclaim Christ but who are immoral. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Although some people seem to try this, creating their own community of nothing but Christians in their entire uh, relational life. Nonetheless, he says it's impossible. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So we are not supposed to associate with people who are in unrepentant sin. Now, even this, it's important to note, is something that has to be routed through a church's verification and discipline process before you individually decide to do this yourself. So you don't get to say that my fellow professing Christian on the other side of the room over here is committing some kind of sin and I am not going to associate with him anymore. 1 Corinthians 5 is there, Matthew 18 is there. That's to be routed through the church, and it's not an individual decision that we make, but it is something that we are supposed to do and make sure that we don't condone Christians, professing Christians, so-called brothers, as it says here, who are refusing to get rid of their sin by eating with them, associating with them, maintaining the friendship as if nothing is wrong. We have to deal with it. So those are the bad associations, joining sinners in their sin, being a companion of fools, and condoning the sins of professing Christians. But there are some good associations with sinners. One of these is simply normal relationships. This is what Paul is talking about, normal relationships. If you 
uh, if you tried to not associate with everyone who's a sinner, you would have to go out of the world. There are going to be people that are in your life just by virtue of the fact that you live in a world full of sinful people, and it's okay to do things with them. It's all right to, uh, to go to the football game with them. It's all right to eat a meal with them. It's all right to work with them, to be their neighbor, to, uh, to go and to work on a project together. This, these are not problems. That Associating with them is not sinful and it's not a problem. And you know all of the dangers to watch out for anytime anyone would try to influence you in any way and the temptations that we have to sin, which come from various angles. But this is just part of living life. This is just the way that it is in a world where not everyone is a Christian. But then there is also the intentional association that is done for evangelism. Evangelistic efforts like Jesus made, like Jesus was doing here, where he got together with people who were not Christians, who didn't follow him for the purpose, not only of caring for them, but also to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want you to note here back specifically talking about this text, uh, what Jesus is doing here and the, the reasons for which he is relating to people. Because it's a dual purpose of what's going on. And there's really no way to separate these with him because they both flow out of who he is as the perfect God-man who came into the world to save sinners. Um, Matthew, Levi, has repented at this point. But there's no indication that all of the others at this feast have done so. Um, some of them, maybe, they were following Jesus. But there's no indication that necessarily all of them were Christians. And nor is there a promise that they all ever would be. As we'll find at the end of this passage, salvation is contingent upon repentance. But a meeting with Jesus is not contingent upon repentance in other words jesus doesn't just say until you repent all i'm going to do is preach to you that's all i want and all i'm going to do is speak to you and you listen and that's the end of the story instead jesus both preaches and welcomes people often welcoming them so that he can preach to them one writer says it this way jesus aggressively formed relationships that would help lay the basis of an acceptance from which the challenge about lifestyle could be made. And we often hear of the downsides of what is known as relational evangelism. Have you heard that term before? Relational evangelism. And we hear that's not the way to do it because really uh, all you can do is end up just having a relationship with them and never telling them about Jesus. Well, that is a real danger. Uh, and people can use relationship as a cover to never preach Christ at all. And in addition to this, you don't have to have a relationship for someone to hear and believe the gospel. They can hear the gospel from someone that they've never known and will never know and still believe it. But we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we find an example of Jesus doing this very thing. Relationships can be and very often are a tremendous tool for evangelism. As you truly care for people and as you want to preach Jesus to them. So I want to encourage you to have a tension in your mind uh, where you kind of hold two things together. Okay, on the one hand, uh, we should relate to people and to be kind to them and to love them merely because they are other people made in God's image and we should care about them. Relationships are not exclusively, not exclusively the means to the end of evangelism. And that's not the only reason why we relate to other people. That is to say... If you don't see an opportunity ever coming to preach Christ to someone, that does not mean that you should never even start a conversation with them. 
It doesn't mean that you shouldn't say something kind to them or that you shouldn't relate to them in a biblical way. People are still people. However, on the other hand, if we love Christ and believe that people are going to hell as they are if they don't believe in Jesus, then being in a relationship with them necessarily includes your desire for them to be saved. You can't separate that from a relationship with them. You can't know them and they know you without you actually telling them about the most important thing in your life. And so if you're a Christian and you believe the gospel, you can't separate that part out and say, I'm going to develop a relationship with them, but then Jesus, you know, that's kind of an optional thing. Because then, do they really even know you at all? So when you relate to others, you should care about them no matter what. But you should also never feel, you know, insincere. As if, well, I'm forming this relationship because I want them to come to saving faith in Christ. That's just part of your character, knowing the truth and caring about them. So, this is the kind of example that Jesus sets, that Levi sets. And I wonder how much you follow his example here. What would you say is your count of unbelieving people welcomed into your home or your life in recent history say the past year what does that look like um there are there people in your life who aren't christians who know by your practice by concrete proof that they are welcome with you and that they are welcome in your life and do these people then who aren't christians know by your talk who jesus is do they know that you belong to him do they know that they need him? And are you looking for that opportunity to tell them? Jesus was separated from sinners, yet he associated with sinners. And he doesn't care. In fact, he relishes the fact that the Pharisees will object to this because he's going to show, by contrast, what is true about such people and about his relationship with them. Jesus associated with sinners, and he did so not just because it's okay for him to do this, but because it's necessary. He has to, because this is what we now find is who he is and what he came for. Verses 31 and 32 tell us all about this, where Jesus declares his merciful purpose. Jesus declares his merciful purpose. So the Pharisees are complaining against his disciples, and Jesus jumps in and says, uh, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. He lays down the principle and he reorients it with two messages. He gives an analogy and then he gives a clarification. First, the analogy which tells us that Jesus is the great physician. He is the great physician. And he says a physician is needed by the sick, not the healthy. Luke, of course, the beloved physician, would understand this well. But imagine, imagine a doctor who only lets healthy people into his office. Even people who screen for things make sure that they have a sick side and a well side. Um, now, some of you may take this a little too literally, and you say, well, I'm not sick, so I'm never going to the doctor, even for a checkup. I'm talking to you men here. Others of you, um, others of you may have this mentality. You go into a doctor's office, and you go in for your physical, and you say, you know, this is so great because I'm going to go show the doctor just how good a health I'm in, and all my vitals are good, and I'm doing everything right. I'm going to tell them about my diet, and yes, I'm exercising three times a week for however many minutes, and I'm, I'm looking great. I'm taking care of myself, and then you look around in the doctor's office, and you see people who don't measure up to you, and you say, hey, doc, why are you even treating these people? I mean, do you see what they've eaten? Do you see how little they've exercised? Do you see how they don't even care for their health? They're not even trying. Why are you looking at them, doctor? That doesn't make sense. Take that attitude 
bring it over into the realm of righteousness before God, and now you have a Pharisee. Wouldn't it be strange if you had a doctor who refused to treat people who haven't done everything right? But the Pharisees wanted Jesus to be like that. Jesus, though, pictures himself not just in terms of prevention, but in terms of treatment. Jesus didn't come to admire your good health, your good spiritual health. And he doesn't come to prevent you from ever getting sick. And he doesn't come so you can tell him how poorly everyone else is doing on their diet and their exercise plan. Instead, he's here to treat your disease, to perform heart surgery on you. He's here to say, I know you need me, and you need to know that you need me. Because everyone does, and it's just a matter of recognizing it. The Pharisees didn't want to need anyone, including Jesus. They had convinced themselves that they were the healthy ones. And this gave them a leg up on everyone else because they could then say before God, we're good enough for you, God. They didn't have to humble themselves and cast themselves on his mercy. And that enabled them to talk about how much better they were than all the people, to be respected by other people and to be treated as so great before all the people because they didn't need a savior. They didn't need someone to come and treat them. They had done everything or at least enough right to be righteous. But Jesus says... That's not the kind of people I came for. I am here as the great physician for those who are sick, the people that do need me. And he tells us just what they need him for and what we need him for, verse 32, because he says that he is the savior for sinners. The savior for sinners. Who did Jesus come to call? He came to call sinners, not the righteous. Sin is rebellion against God, refusing to do what God says, refusing to give God glory, living life for yourself. And all of us, all of you, have sinned in many, many ways. Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners. Who is a sinner? Well, it's people who are sinful, of course, generally speaking. Um, Luke uses the word in some different uh, ways, some types of Ranges. It does refer to people who have sinned, uh, but it also refers to, uh, in particular, in the minds of the self-righteous like the Pharisees, to people who have lived lives that are uh, definitively sinful, especially sinful, people who are known to be sinful. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking that use, the way the Pharisees used it, he's calling them sinners, and he's broadening it out even further and said, well, that's exactly the kind of person that I came for. I know they're sinners. But this is exactly who I came to save. Not just the worst sinners, but everyone who is a sinner. And this is what makes sense of Jesus' openness to them. Why would I reject the very people I came to save? That doesn't make any sense. This is who I'm here for. Why, Pharisees, would I tell them they can't come near me when I have come to call them to salvation? You got the whole perspective wrong. I didn't come to approve of people. I came to save them. And, of course, at the same time, we should keep in mind that the Pharisees themselves are not really righteous. They just think they are. In fact, no one is righteous. Romans 3 tells us this. There is none who is righteous. There is not even one. Not even one. The issue is not, are you righteous or a sinner? Everyone's a sinner. The issue is, do you recognize yourself as a sinner? Are you willing to say, yes, I need a Savior? Not just that Jesus is the Savior, not just that he's the right way, but do you need him? And the answer is yes. The question is whether you're willing to humble yourself and admit it. Whether you're willing to group yourself in 
with people like Levi. People who have done everything wrong. And whether you're willing to say, I'm not like the Pharisees where I've done mostly right, but I admit I have a few sins, but I'm like Levi, who is a sinner and needs a savior. And it doesn't matter what good things I think I've done, my fundamental definition is a sinner against God. Criteria for coming to Jesus is just to recognize that you actually need him because you are a sinner. When you do this, you come to him, as he says, through repentance. And so, as we'll find throughout the Gospels, it isn't that the tax collectors are the sick ones and the Pharisees are the healthy ones. They just think they're healthy, but they're wrong. In fact, they have a horrifying, dangerous combination of illnesses, self-righteousness, moralism, and hypocrisy. They had a spiritual disease, but the problem was it was on the inside, and it didn't show up to most people, and so they could deceive other people and even themselves about their true condition. And from all outward indications, the Pharisees are as healthy as anyone, but on the, real, on, on the inside, the reality is grim. Thankfully, the Word of God comes and shows us our sin. Jesus tells us that we're all sinners, and the Word of God backs that up. And so, maybe you don't think you're sick because your illnesses don't show up in the mirror or to other people. But what's going on on the inside? Everybody needs Jesus because we are all sinners. What did Jesus call these self-aware sinners to? To repentance. Repentance is to turn from sin, to turn away from sin, and to turn, in this case, to Jesus as Lord and to follow him. Uh, to put it in health terms, repentance would look a little bit like this. It looks like deciding that the doctor knows what he's talking about and that you really do need to get that major medical treatment and change any lifestyle factors that have contributed to the disease. It means you stop ignoring the symptoms of your problem and blaming it on someone else. That person makes me so angry. This happens because they're wrong. Their standard is bad, but I'm the good one in this situation. Uh, it means that you commit to the routine, the medicine, the physical therapy, the stuff to stay away from, the checkups, the diagnostic scans, you name it, where you say, I want to grow in my health and therefore I'm going to do these things. Repentance leads to that, and it means that even if you go off track or mess up, which you will at times, you jump back on when you come to your senses and you keep pressing onward, you keep following the plan. But it's not because you do all of those things that you're saved, it's the turn. This is what repentance is. You put your faith in Christ and you turn, and at that moment, the declaration that was true of the paralytic is true of you. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus then calls them to himself that they might have their sins forgiven through repentance and faith. Some of you may think, I've got to turn my life around. I've got to become like a Pharisee or get things together so that then Jesus will welcome me. I hope that this passage shows you that that is not the case. That's not the way. To quote the hymn writer Joseph Hart, he says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. This is who he wants. Not people who try to get themselves together, but people who get themselves to Jesus. So, we should run to God from our sin. And we should come to him in repentance. And so, maybe this morning you find yourself here thinking that you don't need Jesus. I hope that this will disavow you of such an opinion. And maybe you're here thinking that you're too bad for God. You're too bad for Jesus. He would never accept me. I've done too many things. I'll always be in the bad group. Everyone thinks of me in this way. 
And if you think that you're a terrible sinner and there's no way that you can ever make things right, then you're in exactly the right place. Because Jesus didn't come to call people who have a righteous record. Jesus came to call who? Sinners. So repent and trust in him today and you'll become one of his people forever. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you have given a savior for sinners because this is what we are. And we balk sometimes at the idea that this is who we are or even who we were. And we constantly revert to wanting to prove our own worthiness before you. But God, we know that we should be glad in some way to be called a sinner because this is who Jesus saves. I pray that everyone here would know his openness to those who humble themselves and are willing to leave everything and to repent and follow him and trust him. And we ask that you might work in hearts this morning to do that. We pray that you would receive the glory from everyone being a believer in Jesus Christ and that you would be pleased by the way that we conduct ourselves when we go from here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.